Welcome to The Local Authority, the podcast by Local Government Chronicle and TPX Impact. Each month, we bring together leading figures from within and around local government to discuss the sector's future. If you enjoy listening to The Local Authority, hit the subscribe button to have new episodes delivered to your device each month. You can share this podcast with your colleagues by going to lgcplus.com forward slash podcast. Welcome to The Local Authority, the podcast from Local Government Chronicle and TPX Impact. I'm Sarah Kalkin, the LGC editor. Today, we're going to be talking about the workforce crisis in local government. There seems to be a workforce crisis across society at the moment, and councils are not escaping it. From planners and finance teams to social workers and housing officers, councils are struggling to recruit the staff they need. Joining me to discuss how councils can and are seeking to address this issue and develop the workforce of the future is James Jameson, Chair of the Local Government Association, Simon Fletcher, Chief Executive of Litchfield District Council, and Emma Cheshire from TPX Impact. So I think, first of all, perhaps um, it'd be great to hear from you all on your experience, the workforce crisis and Perhaps just some examples of uh, the impact that it's having um, in the places that you're you work in or you're working with. Um, uh, James, could I c- come to you first? You're, you're also uh, a councillor in central Bedfordshire. Uh, what's the impact like there? I, I think the impact is very significant and, and it varies. In some places you're missing tens of people and others you're missing just one or two critical. And that means you have different issues in different places. Everyone's aware of shortage of social workers, adults and children's, uh, shortage of planners. But then you have some quite technical roles, environmental health officers, for example, where you may only employ one or two. But unless you have that one or two, you just can't deliver the service. And then you move on to uh, services that we share with other bodies like the NHS. So things like educational psychologists, speech and language therapists, And you move to the other end of the spectrum, which is the entry jobs we just can't get, which is care workers, occupational therapists. Uh, So different problems, different issues, but it is very widespread. Yeah, the list seems seems endless there. Um, Simon, what's your experience in Litchfield? Thanks, Sarah. Yeah, I agree with what James has just said, essentially. The the impact here has been huge, to be honest. We're running at about um, a 15 to 20% vacancy level at the moment. So I'm sure you can imagine that makes providing our normal services uh, particularly challenging. Um, again, as, as James has intimated, I suppose for us, it's, it is in specific specialist areas. So planning, our regulatory and enforcement services, uh, and also in finance as well. For some reason, we can't buy a finance officer at the moment. We're, we're finding ourselves competing with our neighbouring authorities. So we will add a market supplement just to try to attract um, some of those skills into our council. And before we know it, our neighbouring authorities have gone, done exactly the same thing. So we are finding people are literally ping-ponging between between organisations in, in the county, which is really frustrating. And it's it's slowing down processing of, of our applications and our service requests. It's increasingly putting pressure on those staff who remain in the, in the council. And I suppose most importantly, from my perspective, it's... Um, causing huge frustration for our residents um, and and for some of our councillors, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, I bet. I bet. And Emma, you work with lots of different councils. 
what sorts of impacts are you seeing? I mean, very similar to what um, Simon and James are talking about. And I mean, it is interesting where some of the crisis points are, uh, things like um, in legal services, specialists in children's um, legal services or uh, employment law actually is also kind of another one. Uh, very, very similar areas to what Simon and James have been talking about. And one of the challenges I think connected to that is what sort of decisions do you make about filling that vacancy? So a lot of use of agency staff at the moment, which I think is sort of distorting um, the marketplace for people um, applying for jobs and kind of thinking about what, how how they approach their own employment journey um, with people kind of opting for uh, taking more freelance or temporary roles, which means that they get a slightly higher salary, which I think is a, is a kind of challenge for the marketplace overall, but has the kind of opposite effect in some places of being able to address those those stress levels and your anxiety within teams. So, you know, if you've got caseworker um, environments like social workers, actually sometimes you just want to fill those vacancies because reducing caseload on your social workers probably means that you can retain your core staff while also working through what you do about the vacancies by filling those through agency staff or other other means. So at least you've got a kind of consistent experience. Um, so so the, I think there's a lot of lot of complexity in this in this challenge and there's no... There's no one answer to almost any yeah. of these problems. It's it, it, there's uh, and some of it is we take need to take a long term view as well as a short term view about kind of solving it really. Yeah, so that's sort of bringing the agency workers solves the problem in the short term, but it actually might make it worse uh, and harder to solve in the long term. James, is, is it primarily a recruitment crisis or a retention crisis, or is it both? And is that experience you described, do you think that's being felt all over the country or is it worse in some areas than others? So I think as Emma described it, it is a different problem in different situations with a different solution. And I think we as the sector need to come together on this. So if you look at, at one end of the spectrum, which is care workers, the big issue here is there aren't enough of them because they can go and move tomorrow to work at Amazon or Costa and earn more money. So we really need to, to pay them more. Uh, but we also need to provide them with a career so we retain them once they're in. You know, and, and I dream of, of, of seeing somebody who starts as a care worker and ends up as a senior social worker or a senior nurse in a hospital and has a 20, 25, 30-year career. Uh, but we need to get them in in the first place, and that's partly related to pay. You can then look at other areas. Uh, so for instance, children's social care, and I think Simon described it very accurately, you know, like planners, everyone is bidding for a, a small pool of experienced social workers. So I actually think it's incumbent on the sector to say, how do we increase the pool of senior social workers? Because yes, we do lose social workers, but they're not going to be paid more to go and work in Amazon. Uh, it's about taking graduate children's and adult social workers, training them up, increasing the, the pool. And I think that's an area where we as a sector need to work together and we need to effectively agree across the board that if we're going to have a long-term solution, it is about recruiting more graduates now such that they are the senior social workers of five years' time. And, and that's how we solve the problem. In the interim, we obviously have to retain more. And actually, between ourselves, we have to sort of reached an understanding that, that, that we're not in bidding wars. Um, interestingly, in planning, uh, where we have a similar scenario, but I would say that's exacerbated 
by a dysfunctional planning system which encourages hostile and speculative applications which soaks up a lot of resources uh, and I'm very keen that in this case we lobby government for a more sensible planning regime that reduces the number of hostile applications and we can focus on giving a quality service with the resources that we have available. So different solutions, different issues, uh, and, and, and we just need to work together to solve them. And I can come back up some more on that in a minute. Yeah, so is that, do you think that's kind of hostile, those hostile applications deter people from working in those services then? Uh, uh, sorry, no. Uh, I, well, it, it may do, but the, the key issue, and, and I will use central Bedfordshire as an example, um, we calculated that around about half of our officer time was being spent on trying to get through a very difficult local plan and dealing with speculative applications, most of which would get rejected. But because of the economic incentives, you know, if you get one in 10 through on your farm, you're going to make a huge financial gain. By coming up with a process that makes it clearer that, that these speculative applications wouldn't be successful, you massively reduce the, the load on planners and allow them to put more effort into the ones that are within the local plan and that we have better development. So uh, it's it, like maybe I shouldn't have used the word hostile, speculative. Uh, yeah. You know, we, we shouldn't be wasting our time on applications that are very unlikely to succeed. We should be putting lots of effort into making you know, those applications that are on allocated sites as good as we possibly can. So it's, yeah, it's reducing the amount of work just that there is to be done. <laughs> um, what one sort of way of solving it? I should say, I see lots of nodding going on there. I mean, is, is that your experience in Litchfield, Simon? Um, yeah, I, mean, I think it would be great if we could. I suppose our experience, and I'm sure it's the same for, for colleagues as well, is that um, resident expectations are actually growing. So actually, it's more likely for residents to make speculative applications because there's an expectation not only that um, they will be successful, but also the way that we deal with those those um, those applications and our processes will be equivalent to what I, what I regard as the private sector type of um, ethos and way of working sort of thing. So if a resident makes an application, regardless of whether or not it's speculative, I suppose, there's an expectation that we will deal with it efficiently and immediately in the same way as an Amazon or another private um, sector organisation will. And that causes enormous frustration because we, like the health sector and other parts of um, government, and the public sector are trying to change. We're trying to invest in technologies that will help us to do things differently, challenge our processes. But it's a long-term project, this. You know, it's not easy to turn, I suppose, this ship around because we've been doing things the way we currently do them, literally for decades type of thing. So residents' expectations are increasing. We can't keep up with the pace of change and their expectations sometimes, and we're doing our level best. And so it feels like we're letting them down. And that causes a real... And that weighs, I think, on, on people's shoulders, particularly in the public sector. You know, if you come to work to make a difference, to do your best, to, you know, to, to support residents, particularly the most vulnerable in our, in our society. And sometimes I, you know, I talk to my staff at the end of the week and they ask them how they feel the week has done and whether or not they have gone rather than whether or not they think that they've made a difference and they've um, achieved what they intended to. And they're going home sagging almost, you know, feeling the weight of that. So, you know, you've got, Gaps all over the organisation, additional pressure being added because of that, and a volume of of demand coming in, into the into the council. Added to that, then you've got this this weight of expectation and our inability to match that sometimes. So I'm not trying to paint a picture that it's terribly depressing because actually, you know, people that come into the public sector do for do so for a reason, and, and we're very passionate about the public sector. We're very passionate about service provision. It's just I feel 
you know, technology is leaving us behind a little bit and we're really struggling to keep up with that. Um, and that make, makes us a less attractive place to come and want to work as well, unfortunately. Yeah, sure. And Emma, I mean, we've kind of described the described the problem really well, I think. So what, what are you seeing in terms of things that councils can do to address some of these challenges? I mean, there are many different, as we said earlier, kind of like different um, kind of solutions for a number of these different problems. But I guess there's also a sort of broader set of questions about um, how the public sector positions itself as a kind of employee, employer of choice uh, or, or an attractive employer um, and kind of understanding what the different types of decisions are that people are making, particularly young people around whether or not to kind of work in the public sector and 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 actually start thinking about these organizations as mission-led organizations you know it's kind of like there is a shift you know T, tpx is a mission-led organization we have a lot of young people attracted to us because of that and when when i worked with um a couple of councils that were beginning to see themselves in that way people like wigan with their wigan deal and kind of like really sort of placing themselves in their community for their community and also having a kind of agenda around that of also recruiting within the community and thinking about how they grow their own in a number of different spaces. Um, so it starts to create a set of long-term sort of, I guess, approaches to how how an organisation is positioned and how people kind of perceive it. So that's, that. I mean, that's kind of generalities really rather than kind of specifics. But um, I guess uh, going back to some of the things that James was talking about, building really close relationships with our providers of of social workers of our, of those other skilled areas kind of matching you know as the private sector does actually matching yourself up to those providers and i think it's not always about sometimes not always about the provider that's right next to you it's also about making sure that you get somebody uh, and you're working with organizations that are a really good cultural fit for who you are i kind of liken this to um uh sometimes the the great organization that you want to work with that culturally fits you is in Hull but you happen to be in Brighton but actually but some but you know you build a relationship with that um training agency or that university because there is a relationship and that doesn't necessarily mean that your young people from Brighton aren't going to Hull and then coming back and kind of working in that area but just kind of thinking about the complexity of this and understanding that actually working with your immediate provider might not necessarily deliver you as an organisation because of the way that the direction of travel and the way that you want to work might not necessarily deliver you the people that will stay and be retained because of cultural fit or other things. So it's just kind of thinking about how you connect those dots rather than necessarily um, just looking locally. One other kind of example, I guess, which goes back to the care worker thing, which I thought was a beautiful thing that Trafford Council was doing, where they were working with young people to become care workers, but giving them a pathway into social work or nursing or another type of so it was essentially they kind of went we will help train you if you kind of take on this role understanding that the the, the retention rate was going to be quite low like they were only going to stay there for a couple of years into that role but they were giving them a reason to stay um and the support to to study into an into a different type of qualification that was related um so some kind of different ideas i guess i feel like james is like leaning forward saying wanting to jump in yeah yeah sorry yeah james did you want to come in on that uh, yeah, I, look, I'm going to agree with all these statements, but I, I do think one of the things that we need to do as a sector, you know, with 343 councils, we shouldn't operate as 343 councils all having their entirely separate recruitment strategies. We do need to coordinate. Uh, you know, I looked there at Simon and 
if in Litchfield, they're going to recruit lots of trainee planners and train them up and everyone around them goes, great, Simon, we'll, we'll take them in three <laughs> years time. That's just not going to work. So we need to cooperate when we're talking about social workers, planners, and many other areas that are specialist or, or likely to be specialist to local government. We need to do this as a sector because otherwise we'll, uh, as Simon said earlier, we'll be adding market rate supplements and be pitching against each other. So, uh, and that's certainly an advert for the LGA here is one of the things that we're now looking at is can we have a workforce strategy to help the sector? And, you know, where is it that councils are able to do the heavy lifting on their own? Because if you recruit social workers, for instance, a year, you may be recruiting 20 or 30 uh, and therefore you can have your own development programme. If I take some of the regulatory officers, you may be recruiting one every three, four, five years. And therefore, we might need something very similar to the National Graduate Development Programme that we run. And so I think that's something that I'm very keen over the next year or so that we develop with the LGA and with councils is how do we address the problem of social workers? Can we, as a sector, buy in that we need to recruit X number of graduates every year in order that we have sufficient senior social workers in five years' time. Can we think about this continuing development that Emma was talking about for some of those what I call entry-level jobs, you know, whether that is is a care worker or or something else, that we keep them within the system and we grow them and they have loyalty uh, uh, and ethos to both the council and the sector. So I think that's a really interesting area and it, it's one about cooperation. And it's really difficult because if you're in the tight financial bind that we are all in, uh, and if you're looking to solve today's problem now, uh, to be able to stand back and say, well, actually, I'm going to invest half a million of my, my council funds that won't actually see an impact for three years or four years, that's difficult. But if we don't do it, we're just going to be in the same situation in three years' time. Sure. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the NGDP. I, I think I heard a figure this week that there's there's something like eight thousand applicants to the NGDP in the most recent round, and only the number that were sort of given places placements was in the hundreds. So perhaps you know there there is people wanting to enter the workforce, but perhaps council could make more use of of that. Well, well, Sarah, I think the local government sector is an attractive place to work. And there are a number of jobs that are very attractive. There are lots of people who would like to be trained to be a planner, to be a social worker, National Graduate Development Programme. And we need to use the fact that lots of people want to come in to actually develop that pool. And then we've got to keep them, which is the other key aspect. Um, so, yeah, Simon, could you perhaps tell us a bit about what what you're doing in Litchfield on these issues? Yeah, so, I mean, we, we're trying to tackle both, I suppose, recruitment and retention. And if I talk about um, recruitment first and I'll go on to the retention bit, I suppose, yeah. Um, so we're, I'm very passionate about disruption. So I suppose I've, I've come into the, the public sector from the private sector thinking about, well, how can I disrupt everything? Um, and I can tell you that's not gone down terribly well in some places. In other parts, it's, you know, it's been a brilliant, brilliant, really refreshing approach to things, I'm sure. But actually, uh, you know, the, the whole, for me, the whole traditional approach to recruitment where we write a job description, we have it job evaluated, we write a, um, an advert, we send the advert out as far and wide as we possibly can, and then we wait. 
we wait just in case somebody sees the advert in the right place at the right time in order to pique an interest and then think, actually, I'll go to the bother of writing my CV and then a very long um, supporting statement and then submitting that and then waiting a couple of weeks to hear whether or not I've been shortlisted and then being interviewed on. I just find that whole thing incredibly frustrating and definitely not, in my experience in the private sector, how a commercial organisation operates. So we're, we're trying to bring a different approach. So essentially we've... Um, We've created what we call a, a talent acquisition company. Um, and again, in the, in the private sector, they have very specialist talent acquisition people who, who know exactly how to find the right people for the right role at the right time. So that's, the, that's essentially the approach that we're trying to adopt. We, we brought this person in um, and when we've got a job application or a job requirement, sorry, um, like a planner, we will say to them, look, as, um, as James has said, there are 344 councils in this country. They're all planning authorities. So I can tell you now where the applicants to this job are. They're working for those councils at the moment. And I know that's going to sound terrible, James, because your point earlier was absolutely accurate about we shouldn't be competing and things. But at the moment, given you know the 10, 10 to 20% turnover we're currently experiencing, we will, the talent acquisition officer will go and tap people on the shoulder and they'll say, look, have you heard about Litchfield? Planning in Litchfield is spectacular and it's totally different to any other planning authority you can possibly imagine. Um, and then start to talk to them about the role and why it's a wide and varied planning up opportunity we're both rural, um, semi-urban and very urban in terms of the, the makeup and things. And so the, the type of applications we're getting. And, and that type of thing is what we're doing on a on a person-by-person person basis, having individual conversations, trying to elicit a level of um, interest. And then rather than saying to them, brilliant, now send in your your CV and your supporting statement. We're saying, okay, we're going we're gonna to interview you twice. We'll do a technical fit interview and then we'll do a cultural fit interview. After which... You'll you'll done you'll be done in terms of the process. We, you'll then just need to to wait for us to tell you whether or not you're the person or one of the people that we'd like to bring. And does that make sense? So, not only is it hopefully going to find quality applications much much quicker, the process itself should be shorter. So, ergo, hopefully people then you know they're ready to give their notice into their current employer, who clearly hate Litchfield District Council potentially because we're poaching their planners etc. But you know they can join us quicker. So, that's one thing that we're testing. Um, and we've started to do that over the last maybe three or four months or so. We're just testing whether or not and um, we're, we're targeting the right roles at the right time to take that approach. So that's one one thing. And then in terms of retention, um, we started to try to change the almost the contract or the relationship between us and staff internally. So once you're here, we want you want we we want you to feel a genuine sense of belonging and well-being as a part of being an employer, an employee rather at um, Litchfield District Council. And what that means is us genuinely valuing our staff more than we have done previously. And that means trusting them. It means empowering them to make decisions. It means challenging them to develop and to to come through the workforce and come through the organisational structures, etc. And it means investing in them, you know, so investing in their training, etc. as well. And one of the things that I suppose I'm most proud of, I suppose, is that inclusivity. We're actively saying to people, we want you to be you, we don't want you to put on a suit because you feel you have to and are tired to come into work. We want you to be comfortable in work. Express yourself, you know, dye your hair pink, dye your beard pink. I've got a very big beard for people who can't see me at the moment. So do what you want to do to be comfortable in work and to genuinely express who you are as an, as an individual. And then on the well-being side, what we're talking about there is the world has changed. There's, I, I can't remember who said it actually, but, you know, we, we can employ planners. And we've all picked on planners today as well, haven't we, for some reason, but <laughs> we, we, we can employ planners um, to work for us in the Midlands who are based in the southwest or in the northeast, etc. So using technology more effectively, I think. And then you can stretch that conversation, you know, not only do people uh, not need to come into work every day, but actually I don't really care when they work. 
during the day, as long as they deliver their objectives that we've set them on a monthly, weekly, annual basis type thing. So giving people real freedom about how they choose to work, when they choose to work, which you can do in many of the roles I find in, in local government, not all. You know, our, our waste crews have got to come into the, the depot at 5.30 to go out and do the rounds at the most appropriate time. But for large parts of the organisation, we're saying challengers, you know, and I would, re- and this is going to be, Ivo is going to go down really, really well or not well, you know, but I would like to talk about, you know, actually, if, if you're able, if you've got a real clear contract with us in terms of what our expectations are of you as an individual, we're saying to you, you can do that when you want to. If that means that you do that in half the time it takes, actually, am I all that bothered as long as you're delivering what we're saying? So it opens a debate about how much holiday time that we should be able to to give people how much freedom and flexibility about their working arrangements and that type of thing. So, so that, hopefully that makes sense in terms of we're, we're directly trying to tackle both recruitment and retention to change the way that um, we operate, I suppose. Yeah. Sorry, go on, Emma, come in. So just, um, Simon, just just related to that, because I'm really fascinated by kind of like some of the things that you're talking about and maybe some of the challenges you're picking up as well, because what you're talking about is, is outcome-based management, essentially. You're kind of saying to people... I don't quite care how you want to work, um, but I, you have to be able to deliver me an X, which which, and I want to try and give you the freedom of how you deliver that X as well. So if you're if you are thinking differently about how the service might operate, or you're trying to improve it as a team, then I'm really kind of encouraging that. But it does mean that we need to invest in our managers. So going back to kind of like recruitment and supporting people, one of the big, you know, and I think it's related also to kind of like really diversifying our workforce. There are tensions within management and management structures and how we support people to be managers around managing diverse teams because you get, you know, I manage diverse teams and you get more tensions in them because you get more opinions and you get more views and you've got to kind of like work that through and create a safe space for that to happen, which creates a different sort of management challenge, I think, and equally not managing by bums on seats and time delivered by by managing outcomes is also kind of quite a difficult well, it's a it's a shift, isn't it? It's not necessarily difficult because I think once you're doing it, it's actually quite freeing. But it's but it's challenging to get there. Are you putting in? What are the sort of strategies that you're you're doing to kind of move that on? Because that's I think that's that's related to what you're talking about. Really, it's kind of like the authenticity of it. I think absolutely, it cuts right through the middle of it, Emma. You're absolutely right. And if we don't get leadership and management right, and um, the rest of it will fall to, fall away. I'm, I'm afraid. Yeah. So uh, we've we've tried to articulate this in a document called "Being a Better Council." Uh, and it, obviously, it's got a, a view to what what is the what are the better outcomes, the better outputs that we can generate for our residents. But but it's very much internally focused in terms of what we need to do to, to deliver those better outcomes. So there's only really we talk about wanting to be um, resident centric, and so we've tried to articulate what that means. We want to be um, commercially minded because again, I, I've spent nearly half of my career in the private sector, and unashamedly, I suppose, I'm trying to bring some of that experience into the way that I'm, I'm running or managing the council and day-to-day here. Some people call me progressive, others call me a terrorist, to be honest as well, because of some of that some of that thinking. But so we want we want to be resident-centric, commercially minded, and we want to be data and performance obsessed is, is what we're talking about as well. So through, through the Being a Better pro, um, Council programme, we've changed the structure of the organisation. Our intent is to change the, the way that we performance manage people. So I, I don't believe in annual appraisals that we look at twice halfway through the year and at the end of the year. And then we're surprised that we haven't delivered a lot of the objectives. So we're trying to be much more structured on a monthly basis, almost with some of our um, our management of objectives. Um, but in, in the middle it is, yeah, how do we help our managers to to be flexible about that? And I, I think we're going to talk about um, some of that skills-based stuff as well, because actually part of getting the right managers to be able to to run this successfully for me, for me means 
stretching out beyond public sector sometimes to, to bring skills from the private sector in at those lev- levels as well. Yeah, sure. Well, just before we move on to that, so what you've described is quite a big sort of cultural shift in terms of how local government has traditionally worked. And James, I'd just be really interested to get the sort of ele- perspective of elected members on that. And, you know, we do sometimes hear about, you know, councillors expect offices to be at their desks and, and that, you know, and, and, and they want them to be accessible. So how do you think that can be managed with those kind of sh- shifts that, that Simon's describing? So, well, I, th- I think it can be. And, and the whole point of this is you're talking about performance. And it is not unreasonable to have an expectation that if a councillor has an issue on a planning application or, you know, has a, has a, a vulnerable adult or child that needs a particular support, that they can access somebody and have that conversation. That's not unreasonable. So we need to find a way to make that happen. So we're not, you know, the issue is everybody thinks everybody who works remotely means they're inaccessible. You know, there is a requirement and certainly, you know, I know locally at Central Beds, we're saying, well, you, you might not have to come into the office, but we absolutely expect you to answer your mobile phone uh, in order to respond to, to somebody. And if, you know, a, you know, somebody needs to speak to you, then you need to be as available as if you were in the office, but you don't need to be in the office. Uh, there's also the issue that, you know, there is a, a time and a place for, for teams to be together. Really important when you've got new starters, because that's part about giving you the culture. So I think as Simon was alluding to, it's a more complex picture, but, but there's no reason why an output shouldn't be you must be accessible. The, the other unique aspect of this conversation when it comes to local government is the staff understanding the place and the communities that they're they're serving. And I don't know, Simon and James, it'd be interesting to hear from both of your perspectives on on that, you know, yes, offering that flexibility and remote working gives you a bigger pool of people, but how do you ensure that those people do really understand the, their place? So... I think this is important. And you also need to differentiate between jobs, you know, because if if I'm an IT expert and I'm keeping the computers running, I really don't need to know, you know, how far Dunstable is away from uh, Leighton Buzzard um, because it, it isn't a place-based role. If I am doing strategic planning and shaping an area, then I absolutely have to understand it. And, you know, again, that comes to... Well, if, if I want to go and stay and live in, in, uh, Manchester, but I want to be a planner in central Bedfordshire, we're picking on planners all the time, but hey, um, <laughs> you know, that means I have to invest in time in central Bedfordshire. I have to go and visit the place, tour the place, meet with people, see it. Just as if, if I'm dealing with, you know, vulnerable children, I need to spend time in schools, in the special schools and things. So, you know, that's that's what it means. But just because every night you sleep in a bed that is 10 miles away or 100 miles away doesn't change the fact that you need to embed yourself in that part of the community that that is important to your role. Now, quite clearly, if you have lived all your life in an area and in a council, you start off with, with some natural advantages. But this is about having a more diverse workforce of more diverse backgrounds. And actually sometimes, 
you know, do we want someone who's never moved more than two miles from where uh, they were born? Has huge advantages, but actually I want some people who've traveled around the world and seen you know, how things are done differently in different places. So it's all about a, a diverse team. And sometimes I think we think of diverse teams just in terms of gender, race, color, and so forth. It's actually background, experience, what you've learned, what you've not done, you know, do we want a social worker who's only ever been a social worker? Wouldn't it be great if there'd been a looked after child and then they'd gone in the army and then they'd maybe worked in a bank and then they came into social work? You know, how much extra value do they generate? Sure. Yeah. Simon, how, how do you manage that issue around the connection to the place? So to be honest with you, I'm, I've written down a few words as, as James started to speak and he has literally ticked off every single word that I'd written down. So <laughs> that, that was a very comprehensive response. I mean, all, all I would say is I have an example, I suppose. Um, I've recently brought in an, an interim assistant director who lives in London. Um, she's only been working with us for a few weeks or so at the moment, but she lives in London. She comes into the office maybe, uh, so far she's come into the office um, once a fortnight and she's running our waste management service. Um, and actually the impact she's had in the first couple of um, months that she's worked with us has just been phenomenal. So absolutely agree with with everything that James said about some roles you don't need any, I don't think you need any link at all, any connection with the place because, you know, if I'm an IT person or I'm a finance officer, then me being a specialist in those areas is much more important than me understanding the, the place that I'm working sort of thing. But even for those roles where it is important, like waste, waste management, which for me I think needs an understanding of um, the district and the challenges in different parts of the district. You can bring people in who live remotely, visit, as long as they visit and as long as they're visible when they need to be visible, um, then they can still make a, a positive impact. And that's certainly what we're experiencing in Litchfield. Sure. And uh, so, Emma, if I can come to you, we touched on this before, but I think it'd be good to explore a bit more about this idea of skills-based recruitment and what that means. So maybe if the person is with the qualifications you need isn't out there, but you could take the skills-based approach. How, how does that work? One of the ways in which to start thinking about skills-based recruitment is actually to look at the place that you're recruiting into. So what's the team that you're recruiting into and who are the people that are excelling in that team and what are they bringing to that team that is valuable? Um, and, and also to try and do that a little bit with a lens of kind of going, some of these people have been working for the organisation for 10 and 15 years. It's kind of like, what what are the what's the core of who they are and what have they learned in that kind of journey and therefore trying to distill down the types of skills and mindsets that you're recruiting for rather than necessarily what that fully formed person is i think we get trapped sometimes into trying to recruit an exact replacement for a person we've had or in the in the role already and going back to planning it might be somebody that's been working with the organization for 10 15 years really really deeply understands the impact of the legislation has written the plan all of those sorts of things you're not going to buy that person out of the marketplace you're going to have to recruit and and develop somebody but it's quite likely that you want somebody that aligns to your culture um but also has a particular traits that maybe you want in that team of kind of curiosity of progressiveness of kind of bringing different ideas in um but you will probably have to train them and invest them into them in, in different ways so i guess sometimes it feels quite abstract doing the kind of skills-based development but i think grounding it in in what is already functioning well in a team or your ambition for how that team will function and therefore kind of thinking about 
um, the types of capabilities and um, sort of mindset that you're looking for in people. And then I think really, really importantly, because you can't do it everywhere, is kind of thinking about what is the wrap that you put around that person or those people so that they can also learn the environment. And going back to Simon's point, you know, it, sometimes it's just as challenging employing people from one sector into another. It's kind of like private sector into public sector. There are different things that you kind of need to learn about how the public sector works that is that is that you want some of that kind of like private sector experience, but you also need to be an under you come in with an understanding that you're learning a different environment and be open to that, um, while kind of coming while getting the value of that crossover. So, am I making sense in terms of like I think sometimes when we go into skills based recruitment, we we get a bit abstract, and I think grounding it in what you have already makes it a much easier process and a bit more manageable yeah. for managers actually to kind of start putting pen to paper about what they're looking for. Yeah, uh, James, do you want to come in on that? So one, one of the interesting things we tried to do uh, when I was leader at Central Bedfordshire was when we recruited, and obviously councillors were only involved in the senior appointments, but what we said is, look, we don't want to get five similar candidates for our shortlist. And we made an active point of ensuring once we've got two or three solid, good background, good knowledge, they could do the job that the fourth and fifth candidates were different and they might score massively highly on some of the skills we want, but have certain background or experience that they were just missing. And we found that really useful for two reasons. One, actually, we did appoint one or two of them and found them to be very good, but they, they actually challenged our thinking and the other, if you like, good quality safe uh, candidates for us to really examine, well, well, how important is commercial knowledge in this role? Because we've got someone that's really top-notch in commercial knowledge, but doesn't have the background, you know, and, and it, you tested it. And, it. and it may not just be commercial knowledge. It may be somebody who's got, you know, huge knowledge of regeneration, uh, but doesn't have very much knowledge of running waste services into a director's post. And, and, and I think that trying to always have somebody that offers something different in an interview process as a, 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 a group of candidates is really quite interesting. I think there are also things around um, writing the job application in a way that uh, talks about what the role is attempting to achieve rather than necessarily a big list of skills that we're looking for. Um, the language in which you write that job application um, you know, because because we, we know that people opt out of roles because they feel that they don't fulfil the criteria, um, but they might actually be the, exactly the sort of person that the organisation is looking for. Um, so trying to remove some of those barriers is just as important, whether you're doing skills based um, recruitment or any sort of recruitment, actually just diversifying your recruitment by trying to talk about what sort of organisation it is and what the aim of the role is um, and kind of trying to reduce down that checklist of things that you have to fulfil um, so that you're not removing people out of the picture is is another issue. I think the other basic challenge which Simon is kind of talking about is just the time. How do you kind of like entrepreneurially kind of recruit people that isn't a six-month-long process? Um, and I think that's partially down to just 
challenges within there's a lot of recruitment going on in local government and so therefore the teams that are trying to drive that are kind of like under the cosh really um but but also thinking about what are the things that we're putting in place a bit like Simon's kind of like do we need all of these things do we do can we start somebody before doing all of our checks you know can we get people all of those sorts of things so that so that actually you can kind of solve some of the problems um and get people in post rather than losing them to another recruitment process which is another big challenge in this space go ahead Simon um, I think I think I was, all I was going to say is actually I'm really interested in, in that whole skills based approach to things. Um, we, we're we're starting to, to, to try to dabble with some of that as well. I've talked previously about um, us wanting to be a commercially minded organisation, so we are we are definitely trying to seek some of those skills and actually, and we're creating new roles that require new skills and that you know aren't aren't so um, readily available in the public sector. So I'm not talking about. You know, um, abandoning some of the truly, you know, important and um, very um, specialist roles that we have in local authorities at all. But, you know, we, we've introduced robots in, in Litchfield District Council. And so we need a new skill set where people are able to manipulate, manage and get the most out of those robots and that type of thing. Okay. We've also what start- are the robots doing in your council? Uh, so they're what curr- roles are they? No, so they're, they're currently processing some of our benefit applications and some of our change of circumstances. And they're about to go live, I think, processing a part of the planning application process as well. And um, the other thing that we're not and they're certainly not making decisions on, but you know, they're able to process part of the of the um the application. We're also looking at um business analysts. So, you know, we can't change the organization if we've been in the organization and we don't know any other way of doing it. So we're bringing in different skill sets there. We're, we're, I'm quite passionate about systems thinking. So our business analysts are starting to think about the whole process and how we can and what's wrong with that process where we're encouraging rather than driving out failure demand and that type of thing as well i could get really geeky about some of this i think it's fair to say but yeah the point is i guess that whole skills-based approach is i believe um really really interesting and i think it's something that's likely to grow in the sector as well as we start delivering our services in different ways relying on different technologies and things yeah sure so we're kind of fast coming to our, the end of our time and we've discussed a lot of the things that councils can do and sort of are doing but James I just wonder is there anything that you think the sector could do with some support from the government on? Um, Well Sarah I think the key to all of this is we've spent a lot of this time talking about how in a difficult market can we recruit more people and actually I think there is an element of how can we make the market less difficult and that's about increasing the pool of talent uh, and that really is how do we encourage people, you know, to come into those entry level jobs, those graduate jobs. It's about apprenticeship programs and so forth. And and I think that is probably the most important thing that we need to do to make sure we're not in this difficult position in five years time. If there was a pool of social workers that was as big, if not slightly bigger than the need, if there was a pool of planners, environmental health officers, uh, local authority accountants. So that's something that I'm very interested in, the LGA works on uh, with councils. But I do think we need help from government. For instance, the apprentice levy and how we can use it is not as flexible as we would like. Uh, and, and we need to use that to maximise the benefit of it uh, and, and de-restrict it. Uh, it is about uh, government helping us in terms of being clearer what our long-term funding and long-term strategy is. It's about looking at the skills agenda that makes it easier for us to work with colleges and universities. So that there's quite a few 
that actually I don't think are about asking government for more money. It's about enabling us to use the money that is maybe not as effectively spent as it could be to be more effectively spent. Um, and it is about also, I think, uh, helping us to get into schools and careers advisory because local authority is an attractive place to work. You can have a long-term career. There are some good salaries that you can earn over time. You know, there are some decent pensions. They're good jobs, but but you've got to enter to get on that ladder. And, and I think sometimes uh, we, we don't do that successfully enough. And then we end up, as Emma was alluding to right at the start, a shortage of whatever it is, social workers, planners, uh, finance professionals, which then means we start having more interims. Interims get paid more and, and we end up in this vicious circle. We need to be in a virtuous circle where, you know, we only use interims where we absolutely need to because there's a short-term cover issue. Use of interims as a business as usual should not be what we're doing. Is that not an indication that, you know, the whole uh, sort of local government pace by needs a bit of an uplift? I know this issue comes around that, you know, the national living wage goes up and the bottom rungs of the spine get drawn into into it. So pay is an issue. And, and, and as I said to right at the start, it's a real issue uh, at things like care uh, workers. Um, the issue of pay as you move up to, say, social workers and planners is there just aren't enough of them. And I, I suspect, and, and we certainly see it when there's a downturn in, in the building industry, all of a sudden there's a surplus of planners because the private sector lays off their planners. Um, it is about having enough. And I would say for, for a significant part of local government, yes, you know, pay is an issue, but actually there just aren't enough of. And, and, and if you don't have enough of, there will always be this problem. I think there's also a perception of pay issue rather than completely a, a pay issue. That I think that's one of the challenges. And because, and because um, temporary and agency working um, has become m- m- more part of the market, it means that people can demand um, salaries in a particular way that is kind of like distorting the market at, at the moment. I think the London pledge around social workers is, is trying to kind of address some of those things um, as well and sort of take a bit more of a uniform approach about what what we are paying for those roles and therefore what, what that looks like. Uh, but, you know, that, that market making and that market interference is not necessarily a natural thing for, for local government to do and, and and probably needs to do more of in the in the employment sector than it is at the moment. I think the other thing that I just wanted to kind of uh, back what James is talking about in terms of like how we use the apprenticeship levy um, and how we take maybe some some um, experience from say the tech industry where they've done a, a brilliant job of kind of like finding lots of women who have just have had two children or three children and then want to come back into the sector and actually reinvesting in them to learn a whole set of new skills to come back and have a whole new career having had children um but the and you know and i think the public sector is a really great space for that it's kind of like actually flexible careers flexible ways of working um you know opportunities to have you know really progressive careers um in in fundamentally good environments for women so i think there are things like that 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 the that local government kind of also needs to look like those those things those patterns of investing in <clears throat> mature workforce um, that as James was talking about earlier bring a whole bunch of other benefits from their previous learning um, and uh, employment history that can kind of add to and benefit 
the, the roles that they may take up in the future and be uh, trained for. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we could probably carry on for much longer, but I know we're fast running out of time. I don't know if anyone has any final thoughts they wanted to share on, or or perhaps their, 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 what would be their kind of biggest priority to, to tackle the workforce crisis? Um, Sarah, to me, is I think as a sector, we need to train and bring more people on if we're not going to have this problem again in, in three, four, five years' time. Yeah, I've seen lots of nodding. Simon? Yeah, and I, I agree completely with that. And I also agree with the point that James made earlier as well, actually, which is that we need to work more collaborative, collaboratively together rather than continue to compete for the same um, small numbers of workforce that are available and specialist skills that are available. There must be a smarter way, given that we are, you know, we're a family in local government. We we engage, we we talk, we we work closely together about most things. Why can't we work about work closely about this same at the same crisis? Yeah, and you you mentioned before Emma the London pledge on social workers, which I guess is an example of of that in practice, where I think they've agreed certain rates that they're not supposed to go above. Um, but we'll, we'll see how that works out. But yeah, sorry. Your final thoughts, Emma? Um, no, I mean, I guess the other thing about market making and the, and the bit that I sometimes see uh, working with teams is just the deep frustration around, um, similar to the health service, that there's a lot of technology that is used inside local government that is, that is just archaic. Um, you know, that you've got limited providers in particular areas like social work, um, uh, like the planning systems that government is trying to invest in now to kind of improve. And I think that's another area that collaboration with government um, and across councils to, to kind of market make and manage and deliver the types of technology that young people in particular who are coming into the sector would expect to be using to be able to deliver their jobs and not technology that was built in the 20th century that is definitely out of date now. You know, I think I think that's another big general challenge for the sector, um, but a frustration for a lot of people that work in the sector. Thank you. Great. Well, thank you all so much for your time. We've covered a lot of a lot of ground there. Um, and some really interesting and thoughtful insights. So thank you very much and thank you all for listening. And please join us next time on The Local Authority. This podcast was brought to you by LGC and TPX Impact. Local Government Chronicle, or LGC, is the leading title for senior local government officers and the authoritative voice of the sector. To subscribe to LGC for full online and print access, go to lgcplus.com. TPX Impact is a change agency on a mission to build 21st century public sector institutions, which are catalysts for change in the internet and climate era to radically improve outcomes for communities. For more information, go to tpximpact.com. TPX Impact, transformation that matters.